so many people are talking about panic, right? But it's like, when you're thinking about fear, it's not, it's not like it's only a problem in one direction, right? Too little fear is just as bad as too much fear. Right, right. It's much worse. Right. But the, the, the thing about fear, from my perspective as a teacher of movement, is you never want to get rid of fear, right? If you get rid of fear completely, you set yourself off to die very quickly. <laughs> You're turning off the alarm. Yeah. What you want is to not let fear drive behavior without, without regard to your other systems. Right, right. Panic is when the only thing that's driving you is fear. Right. The earlier you react, the earlier that you recognize the thing that is fearful, the better you can integrate it with your rational system. And then you don't have to go through so much anxiety, right? You're not highly anxious right now because you panicked early. I mean, panic is the wrong word for it. Yeah. I was going to say, there's like a semantic to this. Like, it seems like panic has different connotations to different people. The ones that hate it, think of the Molotov cocktails and think where fear is the only driving factor. The ones that are say that we should panic early are like you and me, where it's like, use that fear to drive action. Yep. you know, positively. So you can, you know, do something about it that most people will be like, why are you doing this? Um, that's what we, that's at least what I'm concerned panic. I'm concerned. Like you see the fear, you see the, the unknown that's very dangerous and you take action and other people are going to look at you and be like, why are you doing this? It seems stupid. Like I bought a mask on January 20th or something like that. You know, before it was like 400 cases in Wuhan. I have goggles, I have gloves, I have all that I got all that really early, right? So I never got into one where I know they're all sold out now. I also got them from parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's people might question why you're doing that, but it's not like violent or Molotov cocktails or just like purely fear driven. It's more like, okay, I see some danger, so I'm gonna do things that may seem like you don't need to do this. It's more like, why are you doing something you don't need to do right now? Yeah. That's what I consider good panic early. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today our guest is Eric Lynn. We just had Eric Lynn on a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to dive deep into some of the risk, how we think about risk, because I'm still seeing so many people in my feed who really don't understand effective thinking around risk and what exponential problems look like, what the second order effects of them are, and I see people who are fairly sophisticated around this stuff throwing around these words like fat tails and you know second order effects and multiplicative problems, but a lot of times the people they're trying to reach don't actually understand those 
right? Um, I don't think that I perfectly understand them. I think I have a decent and intuitive grasp of that. So I wanted to work through my own understanding of this with someone who is a bit more sophisticated in the maths and had dived deep into the thinking of uh, Nassim Taleb and others like him. And so I invited Eric Lynn back on. Um, I thought this conversation went really well. I'm very excited. I think that, you know, for people trying to understand what's happening with coronavirus, this will be very enlightening and it will help you not, not only understand coronavirus, but it'll help you understand a lot of other systematic ri systemic risks and you know how we can think about behaving in that. So I think it integrated some really interesting things. Um, so enjoy. Without further ado, Eric Lynn. Eric, it's good to have you back. I'm uh, excited to have this conversation about uh, coronavirus specifically and you know, really disappointingly frequent errors in um, in the way that people are thinking about this. Um, so I'm going to just start with why is this not the flu, right? Like currently 100,000 people are dead of the flu. It's like 14,000 people are dead of, uh, of coronavirus. So lots of people are like, we're overreacting to this. You know, this isn't that big of a threat. Um, why is that the wrong level to focus on and what's being missed there? Yeah. So my thoughts on that are, it's basically like the seasonal flu, similar to like car accidents and stuff, we kind of understand their distribution more, their like variants. So for example, it's easy to highlight with the car accidents, but like, uh, like, you know, say there are, I don't know, I don't know how many car accidents there are yet, like 10 million or something like that, let's say. Maybe it's less, maybe it's way more, I don't know. But the point is, it's not going to become, now, the next year, it won't have so many car accidents that you'll have more than the last 10 years combined, right? Yeah. With uh, COVID-19, you know, the next day, you can have more cases than the last 10 combined. And we've seen that, right? Like, you can have more deaths than like, uh, you know, the last three weeks combined, or the first three weeks combined, maybe not last three. Um, so that, that, that it's multiplicative in that aspect where the variance uh, creates volatility in the number of cases you'll see that can make it way more than what you would have thought. And the flu season of flu is kind of something that we've seen many years now, and we kind of know its variants enough to build the hospital capacity to handle that, right? Yeah. Now you add on the COVID-19, and we don't necessarily we haven't built the variants of our hospital capacity to handle that variance, right? So like that, that's where the danger I think comes from. Um, even if COVID-19 was say slightly more dangerous than the flu, our hospital capacity can't handle that variance in the number of people that need to go to the hospital, right? I'm seeing a lot of people getting hung up on the uncertainty around the case fatality rate or the infected fatality rate, right? they seem to be thinking if it's true that the case fatality rate is wrongly calculated, right? And in fact, there's way more people infected and this is actually saying no more deadly than the flu, that that would mean that we shouldn't be worried about it. Right. And this seems like the wrong way to think about it because there's, there's two key things here. One is, we have uncertainty around what that number is, right? So we have, you know, one study that says, you know, that the case fatality rate, once you control for the infected but asymptomatic, 
might be as low as 0.1%, right around the same as, uh, as, uh, as um, flu. And then we have another that says, no, it's 0.94, so it's nine times the flu. Um, and then we have some that say, you know, the WHO study says there's basically no asymptomatic, um, the w, uh, there's no asymptomatic people. And then in fact, it's 3.4 or that, that number is uncertain, right? We really don't know what it is. We also know that it's, that it's variable, right? The case fatality rate changes dramatically based on what the healthcare available is. Right. But before we even know that number, we know that we need to be worried. Exactly. Because we know that this, that it already did something in Wuhan, right? Right. Like, this is what I keep trying to point people to is there's an empirical observation. The first thing that, that matters about the coronavirus is just that we know that it is the capacity to overwhelm the healthcare system. Exactly. So, so yeah. I see a lot of people who are sort of like doing, you know, they're doing their, their numbers, right? They're running some numbers. They're, they're getting locked into some, some set of numbers, some model. And then they, they just sort of ignore the most relevant evidence because, you know, it's not, it's not perfectly numerical, right? But they can go play with their figures. And, you know, in our last, our last interview, I think we talked about like a naive empiricism. I think there's people failing to think about fat tails and people feeling like if they can make the numbers look like a model that makes them comfortable, that is somehow, <laughs> somehow meaningful at this stage. Right. Right. So to, to tell me a little bit about what your response is to that kind of thinking. Yeah. So a few things to touch on that. Uh, first, like you were saying, the case fatality, right? Like there are a lot of confounding variables at play. Like one can be, you know, the number of people that are to die, we still don't know because they're still recovering or not, maybe not recovering, but like, you know, then the IC, right? Still in the course of disease. Exactly. Still in the course of disease. Uh, so you can say that can increase it, but then you can say it could decrease it because maybe there are people that were infected that never went to the hospital. Right. And then you can say, well, technically the case fatality rate for some people that are being reported are like, Oh, it was from this disease, not COVID-19. So the cause of disease also, right? Um, not to mention, we also need to look at the true death rate responsible from COVID-19, not only physically, but, uh, you know, like overwhelming the hospital, like people that could have gotten treated now won't be, or depression and suicide resulting from unemployment in the economic sector, right? There's, there's an exponential, you know, fan out resulting from this, right? So that's, that's one. Uh, in terms of other things you have to look at beyond the first order, right? Um, the other thing is when you model, um, let's even say that people that do model think it is a fat tail. Like even at that point, um, trying to model a fat tail is like people that do this for a living know that that's you know, an extreme, extremely high sensitivity error. Basically, you change one variable by like a decimal point, you can get like a thousand times more of something. Like the, the sensitivity to error changes the result greatly. So it's kind of foolish to try to model some of these things. Um, but like what you were saying, you can look at, you know, 
kind of more like observational evidence, like more like directly, uh, you can see what's happening, right? Like with Wuhan. Empirical observation, right? Sure, yeah. Like with Wuhan, we saw that, you know, they were like cremating bodies like way more than they normally do, like at 10x capacity. We saw that hospitals were overwhelmed purely by the fact that they were building new hospitals, right? We saw the extent of their lockdown, like people basically can't leave their house, period. It's not like a shelter we had. And um, even after they did that, it was, it started slowing down, whether we can believe their numbers or not, but it was still like, you know, spreading, right? Uh, until now, like it's really slowed down. And then we saw the same thing happen in Italy. Now their hospitals are being overwhelmed, right? And we're not far behind. Um, so it's like, yes, you can, you can model all you want, but like the sensitivity to error is gonna be so great that like you won't truly know. Um, so my thought is, from the very beginning, if you know something is, it's, and this comes from Talib, but like if something is um, high impact, like deaths or like related with your finance, uh, and it's something that, you know, is kind of like a tail event that uh, you just don't know how bad it, like how explosive it can be, right? Like it, from one model, it might just be like, oh, only 100 deaths. For another model, it could be like a million deaths. Uh, that's kind of like the tail, right? Like in a normal distribution, a tail may say like, oh, there's only a 1%, like percent possibility of a million deaths. But in another model, we use a tail, it's like, you know, 5% possibility of a million deaths. Then like, that's, you know, a significant change, right? Depending on the, like, the the exponent of the power law, like it can become even more. In those cases, you, you know, it can be explosive, it's fat tail, uh, it's multiplicative, and it's um, high impact because a lot of people can die. The economy could be infected, uh, affected, and stuff like that. You don't really need anything more than that to make a decision, right? On January 26th, um, Talib and like three other people like had a paper that basically said we had to do something draconian about this or we're going to suffer like every day we wait, the impact to the economy and everyone will be exponential. Or like some large amount that we don't understand. It's nonlinear, convex, right? And, and that's happening. <laughs> like we should have, you know, heeded that warning. Even like this Hong Kong doctor was saying like in the past, because they dealt with SARS and stuff, like, you know, we need to do something draconian. Like we need to stop the, all the airlines and stuff. Um, I want to stop for a second. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think a lot of people, like, they don't they don't have good models in their mind for what a fat tail distribution is, or power law distribution versus a, a normal distribution, or like what a multiplicative problem is. So, you know, when we start throwing around these words, a lot of times it just kind of it just sort of blows past people, right? And right. people, you know, people like. Uh, last time we talked, there was this idea of extremist stand, right? And, and media Christian, right? So uh, a me me mediocre stand. Um, so we can say flu, for instance, is mediocre stand or diabetes or all these things, right? We have enough experience of them that we know roughly how they'll distribute themselves over the year. And we don't expect there to be a massive variability in that. So, you know, um, the, like, you know, you can look at a curve of flu deaths over the course of a year, right? And 
there's going to be a peak at some point and it's going to tail off, right? And then you could, you could look at uh, a curve of, of, uh, of flu deaths across years, right? And you get a relatively normal distribution of what flus look like from one year to another if you're looking just at influenza. Um, okay. So you're going to say that in most years, I think that the variation in this country from year to year, if I remember correctly, um, it's like, what is it? I think it's like between 20 to 60,000 people die per year, right? In this country. So uh, what we can expect is that, you know, a small percentage of years are going to be 20,000. A small percentage of years are going to be 60,000. And most years are going to be, say, 40,000. Right. So that's going to be a relatively normal distribution. And I think that we all kind of assume that most things will behave that way. Right. Right. So when we see something like COVID-19, our, our brain jumps to what is the closest thing I can model this to flu and how does flu behave? Oh, you know, even if this is a bad flu year, so what, right? The, 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 the 1% worst flu year, still not that big of a deal. Right. So now, but if we look at pandemics in general, they're not shaped like a Gaussian's curve, right? Right. So, um, you know, what percentage of all the deaths from, from flu or respiratory illnesses in the 20th century was caused by, by, uh, by the Spanish flu, for instance. Like quite a lot. I don't think it's an 80-20 thing or anything like that, but it's a big, it's a big percentage, right? It's a tail of right. it. Right. So the 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 other distribution that that most people aren't aware of is the Pareto distribution or the power law distribution. So we have, you know, uh, the the classic 80-20 rule. 20% causes 80%. So you Instead of a curve that looks like this, you have a curve that looks like that. Right. And um, yeah, just tell me if I'm getting this wrong because <laughs> you're the math guy. But yeah, I, 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 can, I can interrupt there a little bit. Um, so, so like normal distribution is basically similar to uh, basically flipping a coin. Fifty yeah. percent of the time it'll go heads. Fifty percent of the time it'll go tails. Yeah. And um, if you flip a coin a hundred times, um, the very center will be 50 heads, 50 tails. Mm -hmm. And the farthest, farthest to the left will be a hundred heads and farthest to the right be a hundred tails. Mm -hmm. And you kind of map it out from that. The, and that's also known as a random walk or Gaussian or Brownian mm -hmm. has many names. Now, um, there are many other distributions. Pareto's one student T there's like a lot of these type of uh, distributions and um, when the distribution has a tail that's fatter meaning the chance of getting a hundred heads is higher than a normal distribution it's called like a fat tail right uh, or a thicker tail in those distributions uh, those you know one-off events happen at a greater probability now, Tlaib has technical, I'm not sure if this was in the technical part of the black swan or not, but like he talks about the distinction between a gray swan and a black swan. So gray swan is where we kind of know the distribution, but it's a thicker tail. Sure. 
And in those cases, um, the, you, you may have your center here, and that's most likely what's going to happen. But sometimes you'll get these crazy events that you don't expect. And we've seen that with the flu sometimes. So he, I would, I've, I'm not positive what Lee would say, but I think he'll call uh, the seasonal flu maybe a gray swan event where there's a thicker tail and hospitals are ready for that thicker tail based on their models, but we kind of know the distribution. Um, so in those events, we kind of know uh, what's going to happen. The danger with a pandemic uh, virus, like a zoonotic one, like uh, COVID-19, where it came from an animal, is we, we know somewhat that's a, you know, a fat tail thing because it's a multiplicative thing, right? Mm -hmm. R0, by definition, is multiplicative. Basically, you take thing, one person, infect the other people, infect the other people, infect, that's multiplicative. You know that that's how viruses work, right? Exactly. So like in those cases, you know that it's multiplying, meaning you know that's probably going to be some sort of fatter tail than normal distribution because the extremes are more likely to happen when you're multiplying. In those cases, uh, because we've never seen it before, it's not really going to be a gray swan. Uh, we don't know the distribution as well. So it becomes more of a black, blacker swan, if you will. Um, and that's where it becomes dangerous because we know that when something is multiplicative, the tails uh, are, can have a high sensitivity error where it can go from like, you know, one out of a billion to one out of two, or one out of three, right? Like it's, it's, we don't know how much that modulates. And that's, that's where that variance in the variance itself is, uh, is dangerous. So kind of having the distinction between a typical typical Gaussian, which like we know it's centered, right? Like humans are very Gaussian. They're always gonna be, you know, within four feet and nine feet tall, right? You're not gonna have one human that's taller than a hundred people. Yeah. But you may have a flu season that will be, you know, three or four floor seasons combined or something like that. And that's the gray swan aspect of it. But we still know it enough to model and get things ready. Well, flu um, has and a, then, a flatter curve than human height but it's still right. a curve that we are relatively aware of. Whereas we really don't know what the curve, uh, the, you know, the, the tail size of COVID, right? Like exactly. what is the variation of how bad it could be? Right. And our hospitals aren't prepared for that variation. It's prepared for kind of the gray swan variation that we can get from the seasonal flu. Um, and that's where the danger kind of lies. Yeah. One thing- And to just to, oh. Continue. One thing that you're seeing a lot of like very intelligent people sort of their response to this is since there's been a big response, especially you're starting to see more and more people who are relatively statistically literate, you know, relatively, I say, <laughs> uh, you know, who, who are interesting thinkers in other domains who are coming out and saying, maybe we're overreacting to this. Maybe we're overreacting to this. We need more information. Like Ionidas, who's a, you know, <laughs> Uh, a thinker who, who's made some great works in pointing out the replication crisis in psychology and, and throughout the sciences, you know, he's come out and had this paper basically saying we need more information. Um, there's an error there, right? Um, because of the asymmetry of risk of, you know, what you get from getting more information versus what you get. Exactly. If, there's not, if you, if you don't react at a low enough information. Exactly. So go ahead and explain that a little bit. Like why yeah. that is so important. 
I love to touch on that. So it's kind of related to our actually former podcast where we talked about um, how Bayesian thinking is a really good form of thinking, uh, particularly in media Christian, media Christian worlds. It's more dangerous in situations where kind of like you were saying, like you need to make that decision. Otherwise it's going to get much worse. So like uh, Talib uses the analogy of a bear and a stone. Like, are you going to mistake a bear for a stone or a stone for a bear, right? Like you're going to always think it's a bear so you don't die because the moment you make the mistake of trying to get more information, you're dead. Uh, and then you don't have the, what's called long-term probability. So a lot of uh, Bayesian thinking is, I find that, common among math like math based engineer based people mm-hmm. because they want the data so in terms of acquiring the data uh it's perfectly fine and bayesian thinking is perfectly fine if the environment you're in is uh, ergodic ergodic which basically means that there's no way you're gonna die there's no way you're gonna lose all your money you can run it long term so that eventually you hit the truth yeah. it works yeah it completely works the thing is, when you're in a, an environment that's non-ergotic, where there's like an absorbing barrier that'll kill you or destroy all your wealth, you're not gonna be able to hit the long term before you, you, know, you converge to the, to the actual truth. So the thing is, like you were mentioning with the asymmetry of getting more information and the risk you take to try to get that more information, by the time you try to catch up uh, with the data, you may have already been, you know, dead, or like the economy may have been affected, affected due to hospitals being overwhelmed and people staying home, right? So like, trying to get that information fast, uh, it could actually hurt you. Whereas if you know that uh, you take a more simpler, like, you know, bear versus stone, or just ask a, a grandma approach, well, if, you know, there's something that you don't understand, that's multiplicative, you don't know the distribution yet. And we know that there is a high impact because in this case, it kills you. Um, trying to wait for that information is dangerous. So we can take the more, this is when you would, the only time you apply the precautionary principle, um, which is when you, know, you have a multiplicative process that's unknown and it's high impact. You would not apply the precautionary principle in a media Christian world, right? You wouldn't apply the precautionary principle where you know, Bayesian principles apply. Um, but in a, in a world where you can lose all your money, where you can die, where the engineer is not used to, you know, the, the usual data mining world, that's, that's where uh, precautionary principle applies. And that's where you can't necessarily apply. You can apply Bayesian as a, if you were God and you have a million years to wait and, and that doesn't matter, right? Then yeah, it works. That's totally fine. But yeah, not when uh, a high, high impact risk is running faster than you can apply your data. So it's interesting. I, like I, uh, I think my thinking in this area has been quite Bayesian, right? As I've prepared, as I've gone through the process of trying to recognize what's going on with with COVID, um, I've been using a sort of Bayesian process. I think that what 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 made me concerned earlier was one Taleb is one of the one of my priors, right? So I have right. a set of priors to pull off of, right? And two, I've read a lot of history. And so I know how About pandemics. pandemics have been major issues in, in human lives. Right. So what I'm seeing from a lot of people to me looks like a kind of naive Bayesianism, right? They don't have a sufficiently wide prior set to 
to get any value out of it. But even myself, right? Like I, I could see that, that there was this exponential process going on, but I was waiting for indicators for when to react. Right. Which I think is a mistake, right? In retrospect, I should have been reacting much earlier and recognizing that I, that, that, that the thing that I was looking at needed to be treated in a different way. Right. Treated in the extremistan model um, would have gotten me further ahead in reacting to this. Yeah. Yeah. I like to touch on that. It's like, so let's pretend that, you know, you didn't have Talib and you didn't have, you know, the Spanish flu or aptly named only because Spain was the only one reporting that data. Um, but like, right. let's say you didn't have that information. Um, I'm just filling the water. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, if you didn't have that information, then, you know, you may be like in that boat where you're seeking information slower mm -hmm. than the, the risk is, you know, killing people, right? So like, um, it's fortunate that, you know, you, you, we have, it's like, uh, take the financial markets, for example. If we've never seen a crash before, everyone would think it would be in good times, right? Mm -hmm. And what's happened since 2008 is we've been in good times so long that everyone's forgotten what happened in 2008. They're either too young, uh, they haven't read the history books, whatever, right? Now, some people have a better, you know, memory effect in remembering or just reading, right? Like you. Uh, some people don't. Well, some people just never seen the event before, like pretend we are in 1917, right? Mm -hmm. In those cases, it's just, you don't have your Bayesian priors to inform you and it becomes dangerous to try, try to chase that data while you know, the risk is going faster than you can chase the data. So I think in those cases, um, that's where it may be better to apply precautionary principle over Bayesian principles. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. Like if this seems similar to something that you've seen as a Bayesian before, then yeah, it's, you would have applied precautionary principle based on the fact that the pandemic of, you know, 1918 wiped out, I don't know, five, was it five percent of the world? I don't remember. Um, uh, in fact, it's 30%. Well, you actually don't know precisely because, you know, there's a lot of third world countries that didn't have it. Uh, oh, right. But I believe that it's about 40 million people. It's approximately the same amount of people as died in World War II. Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was in a much smaller world, right? Like I think that you know, it's two billion people or something in the world at that point. Right, right, right. So we're, uh, you know, if we had any, the same scale of event now, you know, with almost seven point seven billion people, uh, talking hundreds of millions, that millions, yeah, right, yeah. Um, which I, I mean, I think it's, it's totally plausible that if we don't behave effectively towards COVID that that's the type of event we're looking at. Right, right. I actually have some thoughts on the how we behave towards, but we can finish other things first. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about second order effects. This is something that I think like a lot, most of the people who are, who are taking the like, no, let's not overreact, don't seem to be thinking about effectively. I was thinking about this and there was a, a paper that I read that basically modeled um, a suppress and then you know, try to kind of hold it's it Imperial off. College, Imperial College paper, not the Imperial College paper. This is a different yeah. one. This was actually a paper, that like a blog post, but it was basically, it was called, um, you know, uh, flattening the curve is a, is a dangerous delusion was the name. Mm. of it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes, but 
Oh, actually, no, it wasn't this one. It was another one. But um, anyways, oh, I can't remember it. But but basically, he he did a mathematical model, and of course, we've already talked about how these models have to be treated with a great deal of distrust. A great marketing, though. So I I I'm okay with using it for marketing if we need to convince people to yeah. act. Yeah. I'm not okay with modeling if we need to tell people like, hey, you know this. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So the sensitivity is is is. You can get a lot, but but basically he came up with, it'll cost us about $3 trillion for the U.S. economy to suppress this thing completely. If we let it play out, right, and just didn't react at all, it would cost about $14 trillion. And if we, if we suppress the R-naught to about 1.5, it would cost us about $7 trillion. Interestingly, if the, the R-naught is anywhere between like one and 1.5, the cost is actually much higher. So there's like two, two, two waves. Minimums. But uh, so yes, so the, the lowest cost is, is complete suppression, right? The medium cost is, is, uh, is flattening the curve, but it's still an extraordinarily high cost. But the thing is that I don't, you know, I think when people look at those, they don't think about the error bars on those, right? And my intuition, and you know, I'm not as sophisticated with the math as you are, is that the error bar on the on the uncontrolled model and on the flattening the curve model is much larger than the error bar on the suppression model. Because the the more people who are infected, the more systems that this impacts, the more potential second order effects that we're gonna have. And that, that that's that multiplicative risk that we're talking about. So, so we're, we're saying, you know, maybe it's 3 million, 3 trillion plus or minus a trillion over here. And it's 7 trillion plus or minus 5 trillion over here. It's 14 trillion plus or minus 10 trillion over here. Right. Um, and so that's, that's because, you know, how many people die? Like, I don't see anybody talking about how many people are going to die because they don't have access to care. Like, because right. I've started talking about this, I have people who are followers of mine from Italy sending me messages and saying, you know, my mom is in, has cancer and she can't get access to chemotherapy right now. Oh shit. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I figured that was the case, but yeah, you know, or firsthand, you know, I, I, I broke my ankle doing parkour and now I no longer have access to a physical therapist. Oh shit. Right? For the duration of this. So there's, those are, are the second order effects. So let's talk about like the distinction between first order effects and second order effects and why something like COVID-19 has a lot more potential to have these second order effects than something like influenza or diabetes or, or heart disease. Yeah, I think that's a great topic to broach. So first, I think your intuition is correct. So like, like you said, um, it's easier to understand it does error bars in this entire model because we don't understand the distribution yet, right? And we understand distribution's fat tail, so we know the error bars are high. So when you're looking at like, you know, pure suppression where you can try to model like, you know, the impact to the economy from that, the error bar is gonna probably be lower because most of the effects will be coming from first order, uh, less so from second order because hospitals are like less likely to get overwhelmed and stuff right? like that, right? Um, when you start doing, you know, uh, more relaxed methods uh, where, you know, it's not just suppression, it could just, it, sorry, where it's less than suppression, where we let people roam freely, 
then the second order effects become more pronounced and then you get um, essentially that explosion, right? So would you like me to read that billiard ball thing? I kind of want to read that to the audience. Um, it's up to you. Go right out, go right out. All right, let me pull this up, billiard ball. I think you enjoyed that one. Uh, so I, this kind of illustrates first, second, third so, or effects. That, that, that problem before, um, uh, Peterson and Verveke call that the, the combinatorial explosion problem. Mm, aptly named. Right, so like uh, the, the example that I've given, which I get from Verveke is chess, right? So in chess, there's an average of 64 moves per game and 30 legal moves per turn. Which mm -hmm. That um, the amount of the amount of pathways for a chess game is 30 to the 64, right. um, which is uh, massive. On same, it's on the same order of magnitude as the number of electrons in the universe. Right. That that's totally fair. <laughs> so the billiard board analogy kind of illustrates it very nicely for first, second order, third order, because it talks about taking a billiard, oh, I'll read it actually. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's from a mathematician named Michael Berry. If you know a set of basic parameters concerning the bar rest, can compute the resistance of the table, which is quite elementary, and can gauge the strength of the impact, then it is rather easy to predict what will happen at the first hit. The second impact becomes more complicated, but possible. You need to be more careful about your knowledge of the initial states and more precision is called for, meaning the error bars. You know, you need more fine tuning of your initial assumptions. The problem is that to correctly compute the ninth impact, this will be like ninth order, you need to take into account the gravitational pull of someone staying next to the table. Modestly, Barry's computation uses a weight of less than 150 pounds. And to compute the 56th impact, every single elementary particle of the universe needs to be present in your assumptions. Otherwise, you'll have too much of an error bar. An electron at the edge of the universe separated from us by 10 billion light years must figure into the calculations since it exerts a meaningful effect on the outcome. Now consider the additional burden of having to incorporate predictions about where these variables will be in the future. So the point of that is basically, um, as you try to get into modeling uh, more and more things that uses second order, third order, fourth order, like those become more important, you're gonna to need to be much more fine tuned in your initial assumptions, which every model has, right? They have these input variables. The less you are um, like accurate in those, the non-linear, like the result, like significantly. Yeah. Um, so your intuition is correct in the sense that now, you know, when you are not suppressing, the second order becomes more, uh, more significant. And when the second order becomes more significant, the third order becomes more significant, right? Like basically if hospitals get overwhelmed, then people become, have to stay in lockdown more, meaning the economy gets hit more, and then that hits more and that hits more. So like, you know, maybe it's like plus or minus one trillion in the first order, but like it could be plus or minus even a hundred trillion, right? Like actually, I think he says something about like suppression or something will cost three trillion. I think we've already spent like basically three trillion. We've been putting all this money to what's called the repo market and stuff like that. And I think I, I literally think we've spent three trillion already. Um, so you know he, the first order is already kind of possibly wrong there. Uh, so like, but basically your intuition is right there. Yeah. Yeah. So so everyone again, I feel like you know people are kind of 
applying a naive Bayesian or, you know, one of my friends who's really uh, being extremely stupid about this is an engineer. And it seems to me it's like typical. He's, he's thinking like an engineer about an ecological problem. Right. Um, yep. And it's like, they expect their tolerances to be extremely fine and then to be able to have linear models. And if you don't have that, then you can't, you can't engineer shit, right? You don't act with the kind of uncertainties that you have to act with in these cases. So it's engineering is a wonderful tool set to think about certain types of problems. But as far as I can tell, and I'm not an engineer or an ecologist uh, or epidemiologist, uh, as far as I can tell, it, it, it's a misleading set of, of priors to try to apply to this type of situation. Yeah. So I'll say one thing for modeling, you know, you, you don't need to, as an engineer or as a Bayesian, you don't have to choose a linear model. You can choose an exponential model. You can choose whatever type model, fat tailed. Uh, the problem becomes that if you don't know the exact model, or if you do know the model, but uh, you don't know the assumptions well enough, uh, the error bar will be high. If you don't know the model or the distribution, then you know the error bar is ridiculously high. Uh, so let's say you know he's trying to model like even influenza. Uh, if his assumptions are inaccurate just by a little bit, the the sensitivity error from the results will be enormous, uh, and that will be, you know, the gray swan kind of margin of error. And in this case, uh, he could again also choose not to use the linear model, and he doesn't even know what the distribution is, right? So, like, uh, th this is typical amongst engineers. I, I find that. Uh, I, I'm a software engineer, a former software engineer myself, um, and I run kind of one of these uh, uh, a chat amongst some Googlers that I still know in the past. Um, one of them loves to model, and like he, he, his models right now is an exponential model, and he's constantly updating. It. He's a Bayesian, um, and it's like my one friend keeps telling him that like there are all these factors that can change a model completely. Like for example. If you do a lockdown, that changes the model completely, right? Um, there's just too many variables at play and the sensitivity error is too great for an unknown multiplicative distribution that like, you know, acting as a Bayesian in this, in this thing where you're trying to acquire data uh, before you make a decision, it's just, it's too dangerous um, in my opinion. Yeah, so <laughs> you don't want, to wait until the bear's biting you. Yeah, and not only that, like, so yeah, one, you definitely don't want to wear, wait till the bear for the stone, right? Like, uh, the, the, the risk runs faster than your data collection. The second <laughs> is, is your data collection even accurate? Like, for example, say someone believes they got all the data correctly and they model it, like, and then they go like, this is what we should do. Like, this, this is the way it works, right? I think like the UK was kind of going off that and then it's like, we can just do herd immunity, we'll be fine. And it's like, shit, actually, we, we have one of the variables incorrect. Like, no, this, this well, will actually destroy us. Dying, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the big things here is there, you know, so there's the, there, there's the second order effects of, of the virus. And then there's the second order effects to the economy or the, all the effects to the economy that come from whatever, we, however we act towards the virus, right? Right. A lot of the people who are, who are skeptical about this, basically they're prioritizing the economy. But if we had listened to Taleb in January, 
we would already have avoided a massive amount of damage to the economy as far as I can tell. And like, yeah. I started thinking about this because, you know, I had a lot of money on the line that I lost because uh, I'm not going to be able to hold events. Um, and, and, you know, so I was like thinking, okay, this is happening. I got to get up on it. But like, there's this huge hesitation to, 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 to go ahead and put the, the obvious into action because it costs right. money. But then right. I had this realization, which was that, earlier we act the less money is cost over the time span of the thing yes. so it's like do i want to lose you know thirty thousand dollars today or a hundred thousand dollars over the next seven months right 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 yeah so like this have you heard of prospect theory i haven't so basically people seem to have this tendency to uh they'll be okay with small losses Mm -hmm. um sorry they'll be okay with uh small wins yeah. and then a huge loss um over small losses and then a huge win so people don't want to take the pain they yeah. want to defer as much as possible even if they know that there's going to be a giant pain later mm -hmm. or like that there's a possibility of a giant pain later yeah like obviously if they know 100 percent this giant pain, they won't take well there's some people that might um the point is that's kind of what's happening with like even the airlines now, like if uh, they they rather keep their you know planes running, which they still are. Like I actually have this, nice. maybe you could share in the sh uh, show notes. But mm -hmm. I actually have another one I was going to post today, where you can see what China's look like, and yeah. you can count how many planes are in the sky. Um, and the U.S. has like thousands of planes still in the sky, right? Like if they know, even if they knew that there's a possibility that if everyone works together and locks down their industry will survive much better because it could just be like a 20 day halt, right? Or something like that versus like six month halt, which they definitely don't have the runway for cash to survive that because they have debts to pay, right? They'll still take the six month one just because it's like, I can keep the planes running now and keep my money flowing in. Um, just like you were saying, like it's, it's, it's hard to like take, like to be like, I'm going to take the loss. Like one of the hardest things to do in trading for people is when you've bought an asset, you don't want to let it go because you don't want to admit that like this, you know, take the pain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even though it may be the smart thing to do. So like people have that, that sort of like wanting to defer the pain. And I, I think that's kind of like what's in the minds of a lot of these uh, econo uh, government and corporations. They, they, they want, they don't want to sacrifice now, uh, mm -hmm. even though there's the possibility that the sacrifice later will be significantly higher, significant, significantly, like unmeasurably higher. There's a, um, I know you're not a huge fan of psychological research, but there's a similar concept in psychology called time preference. Are you aware of that? I've heard of time preference, yeah. So, I mean, the basic idea is that, um, and there's some truth to this, that something now is more valuable or it's also called delay discounting, right? So if I give you, uh, you know, if I can give you uh, $10,000 today versus, you know, $30,000 in three years, the $10,000 to you today is probably worth more than the 30,000 in three years, because you know you can take that money and do something with it and you can probably get a better gain on it, right? So in that sense, delay discounting, you know, you would, you would discount that time because it, it actually, 
that time is time that you can grow that money, right? But, um, you know, if, if you discount, you know, if you take the $10,000 today and not 30,000 in three days, right? That would be an inappropriate delay. Yeah. <laughs> so there is, there is, val there is t value to the time at which something happens. Right, right. But most people psychologically are set up so that they discount things in the future more than is certainly optimal for the future version of themselves. Mm, I see. I see. Right. So one of the biggest predictors in psycholo uh, psychology, um, and you know, it's probably not useful to go into whether this is actually predictive, <laughs> but to the degree that it's been found predictive of success is uh, is your ability to delay discount at a young age, right? This is the classic marshmallow test, right? If I, you know, I'm going to leave you in a room with a marshmallow and you're four years old and say, if you, I've heard of this one, five minutes, when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows. Right, right. So response to that is highly predictive um, to the degree that psychological models are predictive. Right, so, right. Um, Caveat there, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, we, you know, that's, it's kind of, it's basically the same thing, right? And, so we we have we do have uncertainty about the future, right? Um, so like, will I even be alive, right? Or will I even you know will I even have will my business survive, right? To that right. point where that future gain could could exist. And the other thing is, it's just it's uncertainty as in you know lack of confidence that that the thing is going to happen. Right, right. right. One thing that I notice internally with myself is I can reach a rational model in my mind and that it takes some time before that rational model is actually felt. Right, right, right. And a lot of time we don't really take action a lot of the time because we think something. We don't take action until we feel something about it. Right. This is common to trading. So like, uh, Talib talked about this in, uh, I think black Swan. Yeah. Maybe flip around this. Uh, this is a guy named George Soros, who is just very good at just being like, all right, I, this trade didn't go the way I planned, cut it loose, right? And he's, he says one possible narrative could be that, uh, I think it's the amygdala, like it kind of controls your like ability to just be like, yeah, I don't care, versus like, oh, I'm going to hold on to this, right? And typically, he, Tali was saying a narrative could be that this is uh, an evolutionary like thing we want, which is we want to hold on to something because that'll help us maybe procreate, et cetera. Whereas the one that just like drops off and says, peace, like I'm, I'm cool. With, I, I don't care about that. Like kid, I don't care about, you know, taking care of that kid, whatever, right? Like then you may not procreate as much. Uh, so like, it's probably rare to find people that are okay with just like, all right, what well, sunk cost, I'm done. Um, a lot of people typically as traders and myself included would be like, oh, I kind of want to hold on to this. Um, and it's not, it's not just trading. I'm just, I'm saying like, obviously applies in your sense, your, your business as well. Right. Yeah. So like, uh, there are types of, and this is kind of going off on the weeds a little bit, but like, uh, this is kind of why I prefer to do what's called options trading, where it's easy. You kind of take the loss in the beginning. You kind of, when you enter a trade, it's basically like, I've already accepted the loss yeah. and I'm just going for the gain. So then you don't need to, worry about getting out of it um and you, you can actually use options as insurance so like uh for example if you think if you're not positive what's going to happen with this virus let's say but uh 
let's say you want to pay some insurance so that if this virus goes bad, uh, you'll make money to cover the losses for your business or whatever, right? Yeah. That's essentially what options can do for you. It's like uh, a way to hedge against some uncertainty. Uh, and typically what happens during, um, uh, you know, when the uncertainty actually unfolds, uh, when, the, when the hurricane actually happens, insurance will rise. So during an incident, insurance is very expensive. But before the incident, insurance is quite cheap. So like if you very early on, you know, look at this thing, it's in Wuhan, it hasn't spread anywhere. And you're like, hmm, I'm going to buy the insurance because I know that I can resell the insurance for much more if the event happens. If the event doesn't happen, I lost a little bit of money. Yeah. yeah you see? Absolutely. No, that makes sense. So one, th one thing I wanted to touch on before we finish is normalcy bias. So this is, I think, you know, like. If That's actually what I want to touch on too. <laughs> my own response to it as well like, there's an attachment to the it's like there's an attachment to the money and the event happening and all of that there's also attachment just like or an on it's it, it what it felt like to me is literally like an inability to let the world change right yes it's, i know intellectually that this is going to happen but it's like emotionally i'm grasping onto my normal yes yes and i see i think that this is i think a lot of people if they recognize the power of this bias it would help them think much more rationally about what's happening i very much agree yeah so this is what i've been trying to fight for very recently uh because i think we need to take action so effectively uh, at even in like the wake of danger right in front of your face, if no one else is acting, it seems people still don't act. Uh, we've seen this with Titanic. Um, another, if you wiki, uh, normalcy bias, you'll see like many examples. Another one was Pompeii. Like people just don't act. And one of the most, uh, most important things in like preparedness that we know is getting people just prepared because they're not going to act themselves. So like, um, I think there's two problems in this, at least what I've seen with COVID-19. One is the government keeps saying it's low risk, which doesn't put people in action because the people are just like, oh, well, if it's low risk and you know, they, they're not told to do something, they're not going to do anything, right? And then secondly, you have people, uh, well, a lot of people are now starting to come over to the side and realizing that's dangerous, right? Maybe not like a few weeks ago, but I have tons of friends now going like, Eric, you were right. Right. But there's still this crowd of people where they like some reason they need to keep their mind like saying that this is not happening. So they spread like what you alluded to in the beginning, hopium news, which is like kind of like this irrational hope to try to like, you know, remove the thought of like this is really bad. And then, you know, maybe as an individual, like they won't have too much impact on the ecological system, but they spread this news on social media, which then becomes viral. And I've seen one of those copy paste messages that people, you know, spread virally on like hopium news that like some of them even fake news, right? Um, some of them not, but like, I don't think we should be spreading any hopium news because of the fact that we need to actually spread, if, if anything, we need to spread fake news that says this is worse than it is because people are not going to act. So like, 
if we know people aren't going to act unless like you tell them like it's not an iceberg that's going to hit the titanic you tell them that it's a nuclear bomb that's going to hit the titanic at least they'll do something right by spreading hopium news you're only exacerbating the normalcy bias you're telling people hey don't worry about no one's going to lock down and this becomes like exponentially worse than it is to the point where like you know financially this has helped me but like I don't want this to keep helping me. Like I'm cool with, I want this to, you know, I, we, we just bought a new house. We want to be able to invite our friends over, but we, I haven't left. We haven't interacted socially with anyone for like three weeks now. Like I I'm worried for my parents, right? Like this, this things that like, I, this is going to impact everyone a lot. Like where the unemployment rate is going to rise so much too. Like, I wish people would just look at what's happening in, in Italy, right? Yes, that's a go, great example. Go talk, you know, find someone to talk to who's in Italy. Because on March 1st, 34 people had died in Italy. Yesterday, 793 people died in Italy. Right? That's three weeks. Right. Right? We're, we're basically two weeks behind that. Now... Italy, there's various reasons why Italy might be a worst case scenario. And Actually, our growth rate of cases is our going faster. Our growth rate of cases is worse. Our, our, our mortality rate may not be as bad. We don't know. Like, there's, mm. there, like, there are other places where they're getting similar numbers of cases, but not, 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 not having as many deaths. But maybe this is hopium. Maybe like, what we should be prepared for is that it will be as bad or worse than Italy. Right, um, right. Exactly. That's how you should be thinking. Like it, it's going to be much worse than Italy. Yeah. And, and so we, we have, you need to go and you need to read the news of what's happening in Italy or talk to somebody in Italy and get a felt experience of what it's like mm. in a place where the hospitals are filled and the soccer fields are turned into hospitals and and you know every every doctor and nurse that you know is isolated from their family and has been working 18 hours a day or 20 hours a day for the last 3 weeks right yeah and they have people dying on their tables every damn day right people you know you see all these people who are like oh this is panic 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 but it's like panic there i think that the government has has trained us that to have this idea that panic is bad. I know, right? <laughs> like we have this idea that panic is bad and it's like panic, fear, like people people talk to me about, like someone posted this on those, like don't buy into the fear, man. It's like, no, like, I don't know. You may have read a book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. It's very important in self-defense circles. Mm. Fear exists for a reason. We evolved to have fear. Now yes. I'm not, I don't feel panicky. I don't feel super anxious or anything. Right. I do feel concerned. Right. And like, we need to take action. And those right. are not the same thing in a panic situation. You start doing irrational things like buying all of the toilet paper, <laughs> right? Sure. We want to avoid that. But what we need to achieve is to get to people to act prudently. Right. And if you want 80%, 90% of the population to act prudently, then 10, 15% are going to panic. I was just about That's- to say that. Yeah, but that's much better than having eighty percent of the population being foolhardy. Yep, I mean, I, I basically think of it as almost binary in a sense. Like people are either going to do nothing, or people are either going to do something. And I feel like if if 
we need to get panic out there to people, even if it's like a certain amount will just do super shit like buy toilet paper. Like most people will won't be you know doing crazy stuff. Like like essentially like people are, people seem to have this like cinema view of people running around rioting and throwing Molotov cocktails. Right, like that's not gonna happen in the beginning of preparing for this. When that is going to happen is when we prepare too late and everyone's unemployed and everyone has no money and everyone is desperate for food. At those points in time, you will see crime rise. At those points in time, it becomes a way more dangerous scenario because that type of panic is mass panic Hmm. due to desperation. Whereas the current type of panic that I'm asking for right now is more prudent panic, like you're saying, with the possibility of some people doing crazy stuff, but it's not out of desperation yet, right? Here's a good example, right? Like, if I'm a self-defense, you know, that's something I'm super interested in. So imagine that someone comes into the room and you get a feeling right away that something is weird with them, right? Now, if you tell yourself, oh, don't be afraid, that's irrational, right? And you don't react to the signal that that person's sending. And then maybe they get really close to you and you know, they're yelling in your face, but you're like, Oh, this is going to blow over. Then pretty soon they're assaulting you. (laughs) Now You're going to panic when a larger, stronger person with a weapon is stabbing you. Your actions are unlikely to be very effective. You listen to that first inkling of fear. You don't have to panic, right? You can get up, make sure that you have uh, opportunities to exit. You know, you can have your hands in front of you with lots of space to make sure that person can't come into your bubble. Exactly. This is what we're advocating for. This is what's been advocated for uh, since January by the people yes. who are smart about this. Exactly. It, start being aware and preparing as if this might be the guy who's going to assault you. Don't wait till he's got the knife in your ribs. At that point, you're too late. You gotta, that panic is not going to be too useful at that point. Exactly. And, and how do people panic when they do that? Right? Generally, extremely violently and ineffectively. That's when the Molotov cocktail comes out. Exactly. You, you have to act. You don't have a good model for action. Um, and you're emotionally overwhelmed. You're not going to... You might survive because of that. But your likelihood of things going well is bad. Right. You know, it's actually, it, so a few friends have asked me like, you know, how do I deal with the anxiety of having to, you know, accept that this is the case, right? And preparing for whatever. And I have trouble thinking of a great answer for it. Um, and I think I have one now. And basically, you know, we've we're all like, a lot of people now are stocking up, staying home, stuff like that. I, I think that kind of message has, maybe not the people in Miami Beach, but like, you know, that message is starting to be broadcast. And you start feeling, you know, people look down upon you if you're not one of those people, right? So like, you feel that shame. So you, you feel like, almost like the new normal, the new normalcy bias is to stay home, right? So I think that's, that's fine, um, somewhat. Man, I think the danger, uh, sorry, I think uh, to deal with that, an- that anxiety that people are feeling now, like one way you could do it is make the awareness more broad so that the people on Miami Beach won't be there. Like what you, you can take action. You can, you know, bash social media posts that are like saying, oh, this is hopium. Or you can make people more aware and like 
that responsibility in yourself, if you can get like 700 other people, like I've gotten, I usually get like 20, 30 messages a day from my, my posts and stories now from comp- different strangers every day. And like, to me, I, if I added that up, that might be like, I might've impacted like four or 500 people. Those people are spreading the message and they impact, you know, like that, that creates impact. And like, we need that to bubble to the top. Um, but even if it doesn't, at least the people, if it doesn't bubble to the top, we've gotten people to stay home more broadly uh, so that we can, you know, have enough testing uh, and enough hospital capacity to handle the additional load that comes from the people that aren't staying home, right? Yeah. If that's, that's what I've been telling you, like, you know, just action, action. take action. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. don't just sit around and let the analysis of the situation and the uh, try to fix it with hopium by sitting down and doing nothing. Just accept it and take action. And it'll actually feel rewarding too. Yeah. So I know you're not a big fan of Jordan Peterson, um, but that was one of the big things that helped me turn the corner on this. Is mm. basically has this, this model of like, you, you essentially in his model, you're living your prosaic life. Like life is, is, is basically a motivational frame arises you play out a sequence of of generally routines and then you you fulfill that motivational frame that's so i'm i'm hungry right i walk to the kitchen i throw some bacon on the thing i cook the bacon i eat motivational frame ended Mm. not an interesting story nobody cares right Right. all the great stories are stories where that doesn't happen right i go to the (laughs) kitchen i start to cook bacon and you know, there's a grease fire and and then I have to do something to fix things. Right. So that's anomaly. There's an anomaly that happens. The, we, we, there's basically two paths when you experience anomaly. One is to proactively engage it. And when you proactively engage anomaly, then you're able to, um, you know, sometimes it kills you anyways but your best chance to deal with it is to proactively engage it. Right? right, right. And anomalies grow the longer that you leave them alone. Right. This is the this is his uh, his analysis of like the dragon story is, right? Go to the dragon and then you can get the gold. If you let the dragon come to you, you get smashed. Right? Um, another way to think about this is that that you're neurohormonally set up this way that um if you, if you put yourself in a situation that's challenging, if you chose to be in that challenging situation, you get an emotional reward from it. Right. If the anomaly happens to you and you're not choosing to do it and you're continually pulling back from it, it's more and more anxiety producing. Right. So this is, the same, this is the same thing for me. This is how I approach this problem. It was like, okay, I can see there's a dragon on the horizon I can bury my head in the sand and things are only going to get worse or I can try to, to address it. First of all, say it's there. And then I can start thinking of all the ways that I can actually start to find, you know, some, some way to gain from the situation rather than just being crushed by it. Right. Right. Instead of crushed by anxiety, you're actually helping save lives and make feeling rewarded and recognizing that there is a dragon in front of you. Yeah. So that's, that's my, that's, that's been my approach to it is, is approaching the problem actually uh, uh, reduces anxiety 
over time. I hope that helps with other people with anxiety. Like, cause I, I personally, I'm not feeling anxiety about babies because I've been prepared all along and stuff. Um, I'm worried for my parents, obviously, but it's not, you know, manifesting itself physically, physiologically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if this can help other people with the anxiety, then we only get a societal benefit because if people can spread the word to other people and prevent the negative news, in my opinion, of opium, then we get an individual benefit of removed anxiety and a societal benefit of less, you know, second or third or fourth order effects. Yeah. Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you live, that the world is always going to be the normal prosaic world that you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> be prepared for anomalies to occur right. and be ready to forthrightly confront them. Otherwise you'd be normalcy biased all over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what people are, you know, if we, you know, combine these two frames, you can see that essentially, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, another example that you could use is you, you ha- you're in a relationship with a partner, right? And there's certain routines. And then all of a sudden, somehow those routines aren't happening normally. Right? So maybe your partner isn't coming home at the normal hour and they're calling you say, I'm late for work. I'm late. I have to work. Late. I have to work. <laughs> So this is a signal. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> now, um, you you can pretend, right? You can say, no, no, this is going to be normal. No, no, this is going to be normal. This is just blah, blah, blah. Right? Right. That's normalcy bias. Right? If you forthrightly confront the problem now, you know, then maybe they admit that they have an attraction to someone at the office and they had a drink right. afterwards and your marriage doesn't end because they've actually been having a three-month affair. Right, right. An interesting, in- oh, keep going. So many people are talking about panic, right? But it's like, when you're thinking about fear, it's not, it's not like it's only a problem in one direction, right? Too little fear is just as bad as too much fear. Right, right. It's much worse. Right. Um, but, the, the, the thing about fear, from my perspective as a teacher of movement, is um, you never want to get rid of fear, right? If you get rid of fear completely, you set yourself off to die very quickly. <laughs> You're turning off the alarm. Yeah. What you want is to not let fear drive behavior without, without regard to your other systems. Right, right. Panic is when the only thing that's driving you is fear. Right. The earlier you react, the earlier that you recognize the thing that is fearful, the better you can integrate it with your rational system. And then you don't have to go through so much anxiety, right? You're not highly anxious right now because you panicked early. I mean, panic is the wrong word for it. Yeah. I was going to say, there's like a semantic to this. Like, it seems like panic has different connotations to different people. The ones that hate it, think of the Molotov cocktails and think where fear is the only driving factor. The ones that are say that we should panic early are like you and me, where it's like use that fear to drive action, you know, positively. So you can, you know, do something about it that most people will be like, why are you doing this? Um, That's what we, that's at least what I'm concerned panic. I'm concerned. Like you see the fear, you see the, the unknown that's very dangerous and you take action and other people are going to look at you and be like, 
why are you doing this? It seems stupid. Like I bought a mask on January 20th or something like that. You know, before it was like 400 cases in Wuhan. People were probably wondering like, why did you do that? Well, it seems like you're panicking. How much does a, while, a mask cost? Now, I don't know. Back then it was like $20 or something. I, I bought two, I bought disposable N95 masks, which I may donate. I'm not sure. Um, and then I also have uh, a P100 mask with like filters that look like Bane from Batman. <laughs> I have goggles, I have gloves, I have all that. I got all that really early, right? So I never got into one where I know they're all sold out now. I also got them from parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's people might question why you're doing that, but it's not like violent or Molotov cocktails or just like purely fear driven. It's more like, okay, I see some danger. So I'm going to do things that may seem like you don't need to do this. It's more like, why are you doing something you don't need to do right now? Yeah. That's what I consider good panic early. That's, um, that's and like, I think that's what most people do, to be honest. They're not going to throw Molotov cocktails <laughs> until like, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you're buying insurance, basically. Exactly. I'm buying insurance. And it's cheap now. Cheap. It was cheap yeah. then. It was cheap then, yeah. Now, you know, if you want to get an NA mask, you may need to go to black market and buy for like $200. Not only um, that, you have to consider the, the, the second order effects of, of trying to get those masks. Yeah, it may, if you get it from black market, it may not actually be N95. <laughs> so I actually have to jump on another call right now, but uh, that was a really good conversation. Thanks yeah, for, for sure. joining me again, Eric, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll chat again soon. I'm sure we will. Talk soon. Bye. Right, bye. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.